Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Michelle de Kretzer. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Michelle de Kretzer is the author of nine books. She's won the Miles Franklin Award twice for questions of travel and the life to come. Michelle's new book is the wonderfully unsettling Scary Monsters. Lily is teaching in southern France in the 1980s. It's a thrifty life, but she's striving to be like her hero, Simone de Beauvoir, strong, independent and free. All around her, she sees the divides in society, watching the treatment of African immigrants and wondering at the protections her Australian passport provides her. In a too-near future, Lyle negotiates life both within and without Australian society. Islam is banned and repatriation laws leave three-quarters of the population in a state of tense anticipation. Lyle and his family work to be model citizens, virtually invisible to the state. But constant vigilance isn't easy and Lyle has dreams. Can he overcome the quirks of his family and relationships to climb the social ladder? The perfect quiet Australian. Michelle de Kretzer really looks at the novel and gives us something completely new and strange. Join me as we discover Michelle de Kretzer's Scary Monsters. Michelle, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really great of you. Now, Scary Monsters, I, I've called it wonderfully unsettling, and I, I hope I hope that came across as a compliment. I want to give a sense of the novel. We have Lily, who is teaching in southern France in the 1980s. She's striving to be like Simone de Beauvoir, strong, independent, and free, while watching the treatment of African immigrants and wondering at the protections her Australian passport provides her. In the near future, Lyle negotiates life both within and without Australian society, Islam is banned and repatriation laws leave three quarters of the population in a state of tense anticipation. But Lyle works for the state and this affords him some small degree of influence, even as he watches his every move. Okay, Michelle, so let's start let's start where all good books start at the title. Let's talk about that title because I'm I'm absolutely going to use this as an excuse to play some Bowie. Great. <laughs> now Scary Monsters, the song and the album, they released in 1980. It's the year of Lily's story. Um, it, the, the title of the song and the album was Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, and I felt these contradictory influences. The lyrics of Scary Monsters, it definitely seems to encapsulate the worry uh, that Lily feels, as do many of your characters, uh, of these pervasive forces that keep them running scared. But you also have Lily reflect on both Bowie's on Bowie's own positive comments on fascism and how every white Bowie fan is always quick to defend him when this is brought up. So what is the influence or is there more than than just these things to the influence of that song on your on your book? Uh, no, I think you've encapsulated it beautifully. Um, the monsters are of course um, metaphorical. They're uh, 
there's racism, ageism, misogyny, uh, ecocide. Um, so, you know, there are various scary forces at work in, in both halves of um, the novel. And there are quite a few super creeps in the novel as well. Um, it was just the, um, the coincidence of the um, year of release of Scary Monsters, um, Bowie's Scary Monsters, and um, it's, such a, it's, it's such a good word, scary, isn't it? Because it's, it's a sort of word you use with children. You don't say terrifying or um, dreadful. You say, oh, it's, it's scary. It kind of downplays it. But only when you put it next to monsters, you get that nice kind of um, contradiction almost, you know, scary monsters. Um, so I guess I was playing with that. I am a word person. And so when I... When I hear words, I can't help but start to free associate. And when I hear scary, I hear, hear words like scar and scarring as well, yeah. which yeah. which is so beautifully evocative of, I guess, some especially some of the mental and emotional processes. And then monsters, I can't help, from the noun, I can't help but hear the verb to monster someone, which is, again, very evocative of a lot of the processes that you you deftly go into. I'm just uh, I'm just going to run this thread to its end because I I couldn't not chuck on the album and just have a little bit of a sure. listen and oh, I sure. I felt like I heard maybe a few other influences is is it too long a bow like um, there's definitely um, there's definitely a preoccupation with fashion in Lily's story and yeah. of course that is yeah. that was one of the big big songs off that album yes. am I drawing too long a bow here with pulling the oh, whole album no. in. <laughs> No, no, I think that's a lovely connection. I think that's fantastic. I t- wasn't thinking of it, but, of course, you're completely right. I mean, what my unconscious mind had at work, who can say? Um, but monsters is an interesting word too, and being a word person, you'll know that um, at the root of it is the Latin word for to show or, to, you know, the, the, the same word we, we find uh, at the root of demonstrate. Uh, and monsters are, you know, they are, mm, they 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 provide a sort of visible warning. They are um, something that's that's paraded in, in order to show, in order to warn, um, because the word monere to warn is also in in monsters, so. You know, they're, they're, I felt that I was, um, I hope the book is in some ways working as a warning mm. of the power of the monsters that are that appear in it. Um, another thing, another interesting aspect to monsters is that we call something or someone a monster when they are, when they deviate from the norm. Mm. So that was interesting to me because... Uh, when we're talking about Australians of colour, we are considered to deviate from the norm. We are still a minority, you know, in in um, overwhelmingly white population. Um, and 
also the book deviates from the norm. I'm sure you'll want to talk about the form of it later on, so we don't have to go into that now, but the book itself is a deviation. Um, It's something singular. A monster is something that's singular, that is a demonstration, that, that is shown, that is paraded as a warning. So, yeah. You are absolutely right. There are so many things you just mentioned that I want to get into in, in more depth. But let's let's draw a line under – the first part of our interview can be Michelle and Andrew uh, do etymology. And, and <laughs> we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention the super creeps. And, again, the, the verb to creep is something mm-hmm. that happens very subtly and it's not until – the, the threat or, or whatever it is that's creeping up on us is very close that we, we really notice and often then it is too late. And that that is something I think maybe that you show us uh, in, in almost a fully realised form in, in Lyle's story and in Lily's story, there are various individuals who yes. who very much... Is that part of the, the warning you mentioned the, to show that there are these things creeping up on us and we shouldn't ignore them just because they may seem small in our periphery? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Got it in one. Yeah. <laughs> so, scary monsters. We're we're going to get a little bit to that form. It it is in two parts. It is just wonderfully bound. Yeah. My wife said to me, uh, she saw me reading it. She looked obviously from behind. She said, "You've got that upside down." And um, I, I had to just quickly dance around the book yeah, yeah. And, and show her it's it's gorgeous. And I noticed in my local bookstore also it, they featured both covers. So very, oh, very clever marketing. <laughs> the, the story looks forward. It also takes us back. Was there a reason you were skirting our present in this way? Is it some, sometimes too difficult to get a handle on our current moment as we live it? I think I wanted to, you know, the present only exists in relation to, um, you know, the present is fleeting. It is only now. It becomes the past very, very quickly Mm. uh, and it becomes the future very quickly. So um, in the Lyle story, for instance, I wanted to um, suggest that, you know, I – I didn't have a that that it's the the near it's the near future okay it's not the far future because society is still functioning it might be creaking a little bit um, there might be some cracks showing but it is still functioning and I did that deliberately I didn't have a lot of whiz bang technology for instance because I think if you're writing a novel that is set very fine the future. People have difficulty connecting it to the present. They think, oh, well, that's nothing to do with us. That's a very long way ahead. And I do want people to connect mm. um, Lyle's world with our world. So, I mean, I felt that I was, um, you know, not writing, uh, absolutely not writing a contemporary novel, but one that is not so far removed from the contemporary mm. And then I had the future and the past because, um, you know, connected to, well, for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things um, Lyle points out is that when you immigrate, the past is no longer a guide to the future. You know, how you perceive the world and how you are perceived in the world changes when you change countries. Um, So, uh, you know, I wanted to play with that, but the the 
the, the story that's set in the past, the section of the novel that's set in the past, is not necessarily any guide to the one that's set in the future, or not a direct guide. But, you know, obviously there are, there are similarities. Um, and, and depending on which one you read first, even if you read the future story first, that won't necessarily prepare you for what's going to come next. So I wanted the reader to experience that kind of sensation of the past being no guide to the future, really, not a reliable guide to the future. You've already answered this question that I, I have coming up, but the inside sleeve does pose the question, which comes first, the future or the past? And mm. and I wondered whether there was a, a reading order. I, I by chance, I, I could not tell you that I made a conscious decision. I mm. began with Lyle, possibly because of the beautiful, um, I, I don't know if they're cherry blossoms or um, yeah. they're cherry yeah. blossoms. I, just, I think it was just lovely to look at when I picked it up. Yeah. And... And I wondered whether you had a preferred reading order or if the disorientation was the point. No, I don't have a preferred reading order and I really want to leave that up to the reader. Um, and this is a book that really, um, I hope, recognises reader agency and uh, the interpretive uh, task of the reader. So... Uh, you know, in making connections between the two halves. So I really wanted to leave the choice up to the reader because I I don't think it matters which one you read first, really, um, at all. I wrote them um, in chronological order, so I wrote Lily first and then Maya first. But um, I, I, mean, I think lots of people have done what you did and read Lyle first. Um and of course, you know the future, the past, as as Lyle says, only comes into being from the from the standpoint, from the viewpoint of now. The past only comes into existence from the viewpoint of the future. So, um, yeah, you know, perhaps the future creates the past <laughs> in the way we understand it and interpret it and give it significance. I love. I love any experiment with style or anything that that mixes up the um, that mixes up the way we read. And I mean, maybe maybe we we do need to get to the story and draw a line under the form. But I I am very curious, and it was not something that was ever going to be possible for our interview with the book only a few months old. But um, how how books like Scary Monsters revisit when maybe trying a different reading order or how we how we come back to a story when we read it in a different way. I'm I, I think that's something yeah. that I'm excited about for the future. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I really hope so. It's interesting. Just last night, I was talking to some friends who'd read it, and it was a couple, and they'd each read it, you know, um, differently. And they said, "But it's impossible to work out what, even if you go back and read it in the opposite order." You can only ever read a book for the first time once, <laughs> and so it does influence your the the way you read and the way you understand it. I think mm. uh, your your experience of of reading the book, um, but I just hope that readers will find that exciting. And yeah, by way of segue, I'm I'm going to maybe draw on my own naivety or perhaps something, perhaps a naivety that we all have that we maybe fail to acknowledge occasionally that 
especially as a child, when we encounter a topic for the first time, we think that topic is, has sort of maybe blossomed into being um, in front of us without ever existing before. And in Scary Monsters, there are, there are many, many situations, and of course in a, in a near future that only may come to exist, everything is new to me. But of course, the, the ongoing experience of immigration is not something that I have personal experience of. And it preoccupies both of the novel stories. And in learning about Lily's history and Lyle's future history, if we're, we're making sense here, yeah. Andrew, yes, um, I, I really started to, to think about what that idea was, this idea of immigration. And, and rather than an event or a date in the past that can become history, immigrating uh, is an ongoing state, a, a state of unsettlement. Lily reflects... When my family emigrated, it felt like we had been stood on our heads. And again, I'm I'm coming to these ideas, you know, as a child. I'm like, oh, this is you're you're telling me this for the first time. I wondered if you could talk though a little bit about the ways that societies. You definitely got me thinking about the way that a society can work to keep my, migrants off balance long after they've settled into what should be a new home. Yes, yes. Um. Well, I mean. I think that anyone who has changed countries uh, knows for quite sharply at the start that feeling of disorientation and bewilderment. Um, and that was why, you know, the, the form, again, to, so that the reader would experience that on a sort of micro level um, and share that experience of disorientation of, you know, this feeling like who's, what's going on? Who's changed the story as you try to make sense of the world? Um, and then longer term, I mean, there are always, you know, things, jokes that you don't understand if you haven't grown up in a particular place or just conversations you are unable to join in with because people are talking about television shows from, you know, 20 years earlier, that kind of thing. But of course, also the the, the salient point about Lily and Lyle is that though they, they both speak English, so that is an advantage for fitting in, but they are both immigrants of colour. So they immediately stand out in the street. And Lyle says at one point that, you know, the dream of every immigrant is just to be invisible. In other words, what he means is just not to stand out you know, um, so that people treat you, people don't treat you differently if you don't stand out. Whether people are being extra nice to you because, you know, oh, you are an immigrant and we must be nice to you, which is sort of liberal view, or people are abusing you and saying, why did you go back to where you came from? Either way, you are conscious all the time that you are not considered an authentic Australian, a real Australian. Um, so what is really lovely is those moments when you can actually forget about identity. But that is, that, those are, those are you, you can forget about that for short periods of time, but not, not, um, not altogether. I mean, when you think about things like immigration policy, for instance, which is constantly, you know, in the news, when you think about the way that immigrants are talked about in the news, um, you know, we are seen as, on the one hand, 
boosting the economy with our spending. But on the other hand, we are seen as stealing Australian jobs. So there are always these kinds of, we, we are the objects of, of discourse and analysis. Um, immigrants are said to, you know, enrich Australian culture by bringing different, um, different points of view, different ways of doing things to Australia. Um, but then at the same time, it's said that immigrants are undermining traditional Australian values. So, you know, there are always these contradictory views. And again, we are always being subjected to analysis, sometimes favorable, sometimes unfavorable, but never just allowed to be. Um, You've just recalled me. I was actually in France when I read this book. Uh, It was called something along the lines of immigrants, why your country needs them. And at the time I, I thought, Oh, this is, this is at the time in Australia, and this could be any time in the last 20 years, the last 50 years, this discussion was around, you know, perhaps the corrosive influence that, um, you know, immigrants who refuse to assimilate would have on the country. But I I thought this is a wonderful progressive argument talking about, um, you know, immigrants as a vital part of an economy. And it's what you were just saying, showing me that even, even these progressive views are still entirely othering and never allow a person to become settled when they're just simply a a function of the economy or a function of some other, uh, some other, uh, you know, part of national policy. Yes. Use value really. Mm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously the, the um, progressive view is the is the preferable one, um, but yeah, it's uh, exactly you, you. You put that beautifully. Um, hmm. You show yeah. us you show us a really interesting process where uh, whereby Lyle Lyle is forced to make his everyday both banal, but also appreciating that it is a side of kind of high intrigue and social performance. There's a scene where. Um, Lyle and his wife Chanel are cooking dinner for Chanel's boss. They're cooking Thai food because, and, and Lyle observes, naturally we never ever cook food from our homeland for other people. That would be a blunder comparable to wearing traditional dress. And, and food and dress, they're situated as these kinds of cultural tourism, but they can never yeah. be a, a show of sincere cultural expression because it, it might betray some sort of unpatriotic sentiment. And that particularly didn't feel terribly far from our reality. You know, we 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 all, you know, as 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 white Australians, namaste our way through yoga classes, and we have a daggy dad PM who'll cook a curry live to bolster his support. Um, all of these all of these cultural markers become a, a type of performance, but if it becomes too sincere, then it's unpatriotic. Absolutely. Oh, you say that so beautifully. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And Lyle and his wife are are desperate to to fit in, to to pass unremarked, um, which they can't, of course, because, you know, of their their ethnicity. But um, they... uh, what I was hoping to show is that what they have taken on as Australian values are the ones which are very rarely, um, you know, boasted about, but, 
you know, we, we, what we like to boast about as an Australian value is something like egalitarianism, for instance. Mm. But Lyle and um, Chanel have sussed out that what we really value is not egalitarianism, but, you know, sort of ruthless individualism where people are absolutely encouraged to, you know, um, get ahead mm. and um, never mind about the other person. You know, get make your forge your way ahead. It's um, uh, they're also ruthlessly consumerist. Um, they're obsessed with real estate. So they're all the things, all these values that um, that absolutely govern choices in Australian society and in the way in which we are governed. I should say too, um, but are not actually spoken about, but they have sussed out that, you know, these are actually things that are going to get you ahead in Australia and are going to make you be perceived as as a real Australian. I mean, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? She mentioned Scott Morrison and um, cooking a curry, um, while at the same time keeping, you know, refugees locked up forever. So, yeah, you know, we celebrate the curry, but the the people making it, the people whose culture that is, well, we only want them in very controlled numbers. Um, so, yeah. I was really interested. It felt there was um, – Lyle, Lyle was positioned, as our, as our point of view as a narrator, he was very much positioned as, as our norm for this familiar but unsettling place – and so it made mm. made kind of the generational discussion in his story also very interesting. Um, Ivy, uh, who is um, Chanel's mother, yes, I've got that right, haven't I? Yes, no, no, no Lyle's mother. Beg your pardon. Ivy, Ivy is this sort of beautiful anachronism who refuses to conform in the way, way that Lyle would like, um, but mm. but perhaps not um, perhaps not as overtly as their children and I pick, pick up particularly on Sydney. Now you talked, you mentioned about not, not having too much technology, but one place where, because technology will date a future narrative yeah. badly sometimes. One thing that was really conspicuous about Sydney is his, his rejection of um, a lot of the society. What did you want to play with, with those generational conversations there? Oh, well, I suppose Ivy, to some extent, represents um, the past, which um, Lyle would like to jettison, and which I think in general in Australia, we are quite um, reluctant to to examine the past too closely for obvious reasons, that it contains a lot of very um, shameful um, decisions and acts. So. In that sense, um, you know, Ivy stands for the past that Lyle, as a good Australian, would rather not have, you know, at his shoulder, as it were, um, but which which can't be ignored. And, um, you know, that, that that's Ivy. And as for Sydney, well, um, I mean, Sydney represents a possibility for the future and I think a hopeful possibility, one that rejects the values of of his parents' generation. Um, But mind you, his sister has more or less embraced those values because I thought, you know, if you've got two kids, it's um, 
likely that one would absolutely take on the parents' values, um, to some extent at least, and the other would would um, stand back and um, and judge them more severely, assess um, them more severely. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I think there is um, there is hope in in Sydney, and um, as there is always, you know, hope for the future. I didn't want the novel to people to feel that that um, you know this is this is this is an entirely bleak book. I mean, the situation is not not um, you know Pollyanna-ish by any means, but um, it is only fictive. It mm. is only fictive. And um, if you think of the end of the Lily story, um, without giving anything away, I mean, the, um, the political event that ends that, that part of the novel is, is a progressive one. You know, it's about hope for the future. It's about progressive politics. Um, and, you know, there is still hope that at the ballot box, things can change in Australia. I, yeah, no, I, I, and far from thinking it was entirely bleak, I actually felt there was some deliciously sort of wickedly satirical funny moments. I was particularly thinking about Sydney and, you know, I, I, I think it's sort of a, a parent-child type of dynamic where there's a just check in and let us know that you're okay and and Sydney yeah. sending these empty envelopes yeah. um, once a month and and that was that was how Lyle yeah. and Chanel knew and I just thought that was gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks. I think um, you've, I think you've beautifully beautifully set up what I want to ask next um, because of course I don't think we can have this conversation without touching on the legacy of colonialism. Lily's story is very much concerned with um, French's colonial invasion of Algeria, while Lyle's future world lives continually with, I guess, both the invasion and dispossession of Australia's First Nations. And then there's also a kind of a, a flexing of, of wide Anglo muscles through this idea of patri- repatriation laws. And if I remember yeah. correctly, any, anyone, anyone with a single grandparent who was born overseas would be subject to these laws. Um mm-hmm. It's it's something that I, I I didn't actually manage to write a question about because it it's so encompassing of the narrative and again it feels like an an open question as a as a reader reading today in twenty twenty one. Yes. Um, oh well. Mm. The question would have helped though, wouldn't it? You think, uh, Andrew? I suppose what I'm <laughs> thinking there when you were talking is that. Um, you know, I look at pe- people in power, um, politicians, and I see these men usually living on stolen land, yet deciding that some people are illegal and mustn't come here because they're illegal. And I think, how dare you? How dare you decide that? you know, other people are illegal um, when you yourselves are profoundly illegal, if you want to put it that way, you know. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the whole question of um, colonial, colonial power, 
was very present in my mind. Um, and yeah, as you said, in the Lily section, this relates to you know French colonialism, colonialism in specifically North Africa, um, and in the Lyle section to this government, which is making all sorts of rules about sending immigrants back home. But, you know, what, what authority does a government living on stolen land have to make any of those decisions, really? Can I take you up on that? Because, again, if we've got this situation, I'm thinking about Lily, and she is a person who is has progressive ideals. She is a person who would do something. Lyle is different. Lyle is is concerned about his day-to-day, but that's really that's really the crux of it. Um, coming back to the scary monsters, we have what I, I would characterise as an untenable situation in Australia at the moment. We can't move forward without some reckoning of our past. Mm. But that's not going to happen unless people get behind it. And as long as governments can have us concerned in the way, and, and for, for Lily, for Lyle, this is this is more than the usual, but as long as they have us concerned about how are we going to afford a house, how are we going to keep an unstable job, the scary monsters are always going to keep us at bay. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is why um, the novel also looks so much at, um, well, at capitalism, really, at consumerism and um, an obsession with property. Um, yeah, but, you know, people, there are still, you know, it, it seems hopeless, but I don't think it is. You know, I, I think there are conversations happening about these things today, which were not happening 20 years ago, which were not happening certainly 40 years ago. Um, I, I go to the um, Invasion Day marches, and I just see how those numbers have swelled, you know, in the last decade. Also, um, and I mean, isn't that it, it, <laughs> talking about France and Australia? I mean, France, for all its problems, it's not, and and it certainly has a lot of problems um, to do with you know the way that immigrants are treated even today. But you know, France's National Day marks the day that people, ordinary people, destroyed a prison. Okay, Bastille Day. Whereas Australia Day marks, you know, the start of um, an invasion. And I think this, I mean, to me, the change the date thing is a no-brainer. You know, of course we should do that. It's a, it, it won't, it doesn't fix racism, of course not. But it is like, you know, acknowledgements of country or something. They, these acts are symbolic acts, but they are important symbols. You shift. You shift perception through these symbols. Um, they are important. Um, yeah. Let's let's go then to a, a a place where we might sort of drag up the hope that I think is is a part of this discussion, is a part of this novel. Because one very important point that you make is the way that stories convey the reality of our political and our social world and where we might go, and. For Lily, reflecting on her Armenian ancestry and the genocide of Armenians, Lily says, I hadn't read about them in novels, unlike the Holocaust. 
and we can see the the difference in the way these stories are understood just in the in the wider world that we engage with what exactly do you see as the power of narrative and of the novel to make these yeah. stories live for people oh well i think you know um telling untold stories or under represented stories is something that um, artists of all kinds can can do um, and I think for instance that in Australia indigenous writers are doing that very effectively at the, uh, in the present moment um, writing about indigenous experience um, I mean look is it I I just think it's a way of contributing to knowledge and that we know about the things we see we see represented on television you know you don't have to be to have been to new york to feel that you know that city well because of all the films and all the television series you've seen that show you new york and all the stories and novels you've read set there um Whereas, I don't know, you know, New Delhi, not so many, you know, uh, Azerbaijan, not so many. So um, it's about cultural power, I suppose. And I would like to take back some of that, or not take back, but just um, take back is wrong because, I mean, for instance, I have absolutely no problem with the Holocaust being widely represented but to extend the image repertoire, I suppose, I would say, to extend um, the, the subjects that are talked about, that's all. Yeah, and, yeah. Far, and far from diminishing any one important story being told, it would just be great if we had a similar number and a similar platform for, for stories about frontier wars and Absolutely. The, 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 way, the way the invasion of Australia was not simply... It was not simply uh, a landing on terra nullius and, and rolling out of beach mats and, and you know, waiting um, for the 21st century where we all lived in prosperity. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And the way that, you know, things like measles wiped out so many Indigenous people in the middle of a pandemic, it's good to reflect on that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, indeed, all sorts of all sorts of stories that that still need to be told and 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 i think things to be told many times don't you agree so that it's not i mean if you think about the number of novels about the first world war Mm. or the number of films about the first world war or poems i mean there are many 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 and that's what you need to actually get um a fullness of representation so that's what we need, you know, many people writing about these subjects. And I think to take us back to an earlier part of the conversation, something that is just wonderful about Scary Monsters is that you you talked about the format, the form of the book invites the reader. It, it, it draws on the reader's interpretive power because, of course, the greatest storyteller in the world mm. is going to hit a wall with an, a disengaged reader. So... For us, and and I, I, I make this show as a reader, 
And I like to think that the people who are listening are readers. And so I'm going to remind all the readers out there of the extraordinary power that we have as soon as incredible creatives such as yourself, Michelle, have given us these these works. It, it, it then becomes our role to engage with them and engage widely with them. And, and as you say, having, having so many narratives and, and making them an important part of our daily world. Yes, yes, indeed. I've always had great faith in in the um, intelligence of my readers. And, you know, I like, when I'm reading, I like books that make me make me think, and but also that, you know, kind of leave things up to my interpretation. Mm. That don't have to, don't spell everything out, that just lead me to make connections, lead me um, to look for associations and and um, understanding that that you know don't spell out a message I suppose, and I I hope that's what I've done with this book that you know um, to respect my my readers by by handing over this um, this power to you. I, I think um, something that I found really wonderful, and I'll I'll just also make a note that I've come to the end of my question, so I'm going off script. So oh, let's let's hope that this. That's, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> Let's hope I stay as articulate when I haven't um, haven't scripted myself. But one thing about scary monsters, and, and indeed in my reading of your work, is you find a way to make the character, the the central character, your characters, but also the world they inhabit, to make it hum, to make it. It's it's not just the larger matter of their lives, but the the small details and. I mean, the thing, it's its gorgeous. As I say, it's its deliciously, like, wicked of you that you make Lyle, who is, he is a functionary, he is a suit, he is a person that you would walk past on the street, um, you know, in Martin Place, if it, if it came down to a world where we were in a crowded Martin Place. Of course, we haven't had that since before <laughs> the pandemic. You you make, you make a, a, essentially, um, you know, a, a public servant vivid, which... Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which I just and 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 kind of fun. Like it's it's bleak. I it's occasionally I didn't want to be thinking, oh Lyle, but yeah. he 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 seemed like someone. I'm like I genuinely want to get to know you. We may not be great friends, but wow. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, again, I hope that Lyle is a is a vivid and interesting character. That he seems real. I mm. suppose, which is which is what you're saying, which is fantastic. Um. Yeah, it's important to me as a writer to create vivid worlds. And I think that this is always a matter of detail or finding little details to put in, you know, um, to make the worlds come alive. You know, you might mention, hmm, oh, I don't know, um, the the kind of, um, well, that Lyle and Chanel are having um, is a packet of chicken breasts waiting to be defrosted on the, um, on the kitchen counter. You know, it's just, it, it, it doesn't matter in the long run, but it just is something that gives their world um, texture, I guess. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I am always trying to do that and looking for ways to do that. Um, or describing, you know, what, um, I don't know, the clothes that Lily's 
friend Minna, who's a you know who, who's an art student, wears in the early you know sort of punkish clothes that she wears in in the early eighties. Um, yeah, just to give texture, density, weight to to invented mm. worlds, so that the reader, I hope, sees the world as they are reading it. Mm. Um, and I think that's the way to make characters come alive too you know Lyle I hope is I mean I I hope that readers um find Lyle mm, I mean he's clearly his values are well they're they're not yours or mine I don't think Mm. but that he you you see why he has come why he has reached this place Mm. in his life um and what he's afraid of um, and what he's willing to do to hang on to what he has. I'm trying to find the, uh, there's a fantastic repeated motif that becomes a, a real part of Lily and Mina's um, friendship. But I know that one of the, the, the origin of it, I believe was in conversation that Lily has with Sandrine. Um, so Lily and Mina, their, their most, withering rebuke is ce n'est pas intéressant or something i yeah. i love yeah. the i love the way you phonetically kind of realize it but mm-hmm. i i wondered i wondered about that as we were talking about the what i said what i described the characters as they hum whether you know something of that was on your mind that um you were you were always hoping that they would be intéressant and <laughs> never have someone say ce n'est pas intéressant. <laughs> well, it would be it would be a little devastating if someone said it wasn't of interest. Um, you know, you just try to. It, it's always a matter of putting in enough detail to make the characters hum, as you mm. say, so so beautifully. Um, but not so much that you know the readers become yeah, the, the readers lose lose sight of them really among the welter of details, um, and they're not you know it's a fairly it's a fairly short novel it's um, seventy thousand words so each half is about thirty five thousand words and I wanted them to be um, you know pretty much equal length and they, they are pretty much. Um, because I didn't want, if, if one were longer than the other, then people might feel that that had more importance and perhaps start with that, that part or, you know, whatever that it, um, I wanted them to be of equal weight. So 35,000 words is not an awful lot of Mm. space in which to, um, in which to create a whole, whole fictional world, um, so, so I had to work hard at that, but I, you know, I'm so glad that you felt that it was vivid. Um, There's a whole nother line of thought that I have around the way scary monsters and particularly what I was reading in Lily's section works as literary exploration and, and perhaps elements of literary criticism. And just then you were talking about the length and I thought if you, you know, metaphorically tore this book in two and released them six months apart, we'd have two novellas that perhaps people wouldn't connect um, other than as, as a, as a part of your work. 
what was the process of bringing them together? What was the process of saying these are these are not two novellas, these are two stories? Does that exist only in yours and your editor's world? Um, you know, oh, about- I mean, I conceived of it as a whole mm. from the start. That's, I think so that's that, what I'm know, asking, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the thematics of the past and the future that we were talking about, for instance, um, and this sense that in any migrant's life, there is always a before and an after and often radically different. Um, but another thing that I wanted to do, and this goes to, to your um, comments about form, is that, you know, a novel is traditionally a single continuous narrative, mm. okay? So one of the things I wanted to do was to, just as we're talking about upending people's lives, to upend the form of the novel. So to say, well, can a novel be too discontinuous narratives, but with a lot of um, thematic um, similarities, thematic overlap. Um, And they're both told in the first person by an Asian Australian, so they have that formal um, connection. But the, the style, the tone of Lily's section is very different from the style, the tone of Lyle's, because Lily is a different person. If you're going to have a narrative in the first person, it has to fit, it has to be plausible, mm. credible, that it is spoken by that character. Lily is an intellectual, she's a woman, she's literary. The, uh, the way she perceives the world has got to be very different from the way Lyle perceives it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a man, he's, he's bland, what he, what he strives for, Lyle strives for blandness. So uh, the challenge there was to find you know, a way of um, keeping the narrative voice interesting for the reader. Um, so one, one of the ways of doing that, sorry, interesting for the reader, but keeping it credible for this bland functionary. So one of the ways of doing that, for instance, was to have, you know, the little slippages that enter Lyle's mm. um, narrative. So, you know, he keeps misreading things. Mm. He sees something, a headline, and he... He misreads it, mm. or he uh, he's talking to a colleague, and he's, he wants he intends to say, "I was only trying to be helpful," but he says, "I was only trying to be hurtful." So you know these little kind of slippages that show there's something more sinister, perhaps, or more that he's under stress. I'm drawing. That he's under- I'm drawing parallels with Lyle and Mina, which may not sound like a very natural, but um, there's a, I, I couldn't attribute where I'm about to pull this. It's it's one of those sort of quotes that I, I guess kind of lives in the ether of popular culture, but um, it, it goes along the lines of it costs a lot to look that cheap. And for yeah. me, for Mina, there's a, there's a definite sort of air of her, the wealth that she has in the background allows her to take great effort to look like she doesn't have wealth. And similarly, Lyle, you couldn't be as bland as Lyle without actually being quite interesting and trying very hard yeah. to cover it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good connection. You see, this is what I love. And I think the other thing is that, you know, talking about wholeness is that as, you know, human beings, we are programmed, hardwired, to look for wholeness, to look for connection, you know. So 
readers will point out um, similarities between the two halves of the novel, some of which I was not aware of, uh, others of which I only became aware of when I was doing second or third drafts. So one of those um, similarities that I only became aware of very late in the process was that um, you'll remember that Lily talks about Camus' novel, Mm. The Outsider, um, a lot because, you know, um, it's about um, a French colonial killing an Arab. And um, it wasn't until I think it was, I think it was actually maybe the third draft that I remembered that that novel um, is, of course, one of the reasons famous is because the outsider doesn't cry at his mother's funeral. And the first sentence, I think, is yesterday. Mother died yesterday is the first sentence. So you will see, I don't want to give you know spoilers, but that there is a connection there, right, with Lyle's story, Lyle and his mother. Um, so, you know, my brain was making connections and people are making connections, which um, are not obvious connections, but they are there. They are there. Um, you know, all sorts of associations. Um, Um, If I can wonder out loud then at another connection, Lily's story, as you say, Lily is an intellectual and there is a lot of discussion um, about literature. And I've already mentioned her ruminating around the reality of things that she reads or doesn't read in novels, but there's also... Hints, I I felt, that you wanted us to be thinking about the form of the novel, um, particularly in her banter with Nick. And one thing that I just sort of quoted in my notes was sort of Nick being uh, quite patronising. He'd read one of Simone de Beauvoir's works that uh, L'Invité, I think, uh, that that Lily had lent him and he – his comment was, you can't put realism and melodrama together, it doesn't work. He has this very prescriptive idea of, mm. of what a novel is and how the form is realised. Mm. And and there there is no, I, I mean, I'm sure there'll be someone who'll be sympathetic to Nick and they, they, probably, yeah, yeah. they probably look like, yeah. you know, a, a pale, stale and male. But um, I think a lot of people understand that you don't want us to be sympathetic to Nick and that we, we are more thinking of Lily's more open and passionate interpretation. Were you leaving clues for us that yeah, you absolutely. wanted us to to yeah, think about the absolutely, form? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, we've been using the word connections and perhaps that I think that in some ways is not the right word. They're not they're not anything as definite as connections. Um, but what we might say reflections, um, resonances, we might say. So I really wanted the experience of when you're reading the novel to be that you you kind of almost, rather than mm, grasping, you intuit con- these ways in which the novels, res- the, the two halves respond to each other mm-hmm. and resonate with each other. Um, and the way in which what is being said in any um, given part might be a reflection on the form of the novel mm. or what the novel, what I'm trying to do with the novel as a whole. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Michelle, this is an absolutely 
just terrific. Thank you for indulging again my going off script. I um no, not at all. Thank you for having thought about it so carefully and I, and responded very generously. That's it for this great conversation with Michelle de Kretzer. Michelle's new novel is Scary Monsters, and it's out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, or on Facebook. You can look for us. Just search for Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast, you will have a new great conversation every week, sometimes tidbits, outtakes, and specials more than once a week. It is a great way to keep up with new Australian writing. I am Andrew Popel, and I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.